Um, I, mean, I talk about my Italian grandma sometimes on occasion because she, she, was, she was just a crazy woman. And uh, she was very lovable. Um, and she had an impact on my life. But I remember when Melissa first came into the family, which can always be a little dicey um, when someone's, you know, on the outside coming into a really deep, you know, uh, connected Italian family. And, well, one thing you got to know about Grams, and that's what we called her. We called her Grams. Um, when she, she was an Italian immigrant, when she came over to America, her maiden name was Ranieri, um, which is maybe the most Italian last name of all time. And, um, but there is a spaghetti sauce that got just passed down through the generations. And it was the Ranieri sauce. And it was, it was unbelievable. Um, and if, if I try to describe it right now, I'm just going to be starving the rest of the, of the service. But it was incredible, the Ranieri sauce. And I remember it was like kind of a thing when Grams sat down with Melissa and kind of like broke out the secret recipe to the Ranieri sauce, right? And it was like a moment because it meant that I didn't just have to go to Graham's house to get the sauce, but I could experience it in the comfort of my own semi-Italian home now, right? Um, so Melissa gets a piece of paper and she has a pen and she has Graham's right here, the Ranieri sauce recipe right here. And she puts pen to paper and she writes at the top of the page, Martin sauce. It's incredible you're still alive right now. It's incredible we're still married. Um, the reaction that Grams gave this woman was, I mean, it was something to behold, right? Probably the biggest mistake you ever made in the, now nah, you made more mistakes than that, but um, it was a big one. It was a massive mistake, right? Um, and that's because it wasn't Martin sauce. It was Ranieri sauce. It was important that that sauce was even named. It was known for being what it actually was. We had to remain true to what that sauce was. If we don't remain true to what's true about God and then live as if it's true, things happen. We begin to drift. We begin to derail into what is false. We know who we are as the church by remembering the legacy of faith that we have come from. And the church is not just this thing that you know, became a thing back in the 1950s or whatever, right? That's not at all what it is. It's a diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic people throughout the world who have been saved and sanctified by Jesus to hold Jesus in common as the cornerstone of their faith. That's what the church actually is. So as we get back to Nehemiah 7 here, what we're seeing as this building project has launched and the gates have been prepared and the walls have been reconstructed because Nehemiah was this cupbearer that got moved to the position of governor over the Israelites as the Persian king sent him over back to Jerusalem to begin this rebuilding and repairing and restoration process. We see as we get here into chapter 7 that he compiles, Nehemiah compiles a genealogy, always our favorite thing to read. We've read a few of them through this series, but he compiles another genealogy and what he does this time is he adds the names of the current exiles that came over with him to the list of the older ones that we saw in Ezra chapter 2 so that they could see this thing called continuity so that they could see the continuity that existed between God's people God's exiles in the past 
um, along with God's exiles and people in the present. So I'm just, I'm going to step through this um, just a little bit choppy, a little bit awkwardly so that we can get a sense of what's going on here without me reading the entire thing and you guys cracking up because I can't pronounce the names. I don't have that kind of talent, but we're going to pick up here uh, with chapter seven, verse five, and this is what it says. Then my God put into my heart, this is Nehemiah, to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and found written in it, these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah and each to his own town. And then as we step through this, we, we just get a, we get a list and we get some names added to the list, right? So we get down to verse uh, 39, we get a list of the, the priests. Um, we get down to verse 43, we get a list of the, the Levites. 44 is the singers. Verse 45 is the, the gatekeepers. 46 is the temple servants. We get down to 57 and we see the sons of Solomon's servants. Um, all the way down to verse 66, where it says the whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Man, I am not a math guy, and I'm even struggling with these numbers as they're written on the, on the paper there. And then we get all the way down to verse 73. And it said that the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in the towns. And when the seven month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And the next week we're going to pick up in chapter eight as they reconvene and Ezra brings them the word of the Lord that hasn't really been read and hasn't really been followed in the way that God laid out to them years and years ago. And that's what we're going to be stepping into uh, next week. So what happens here in chapter seven for our time today is that we see God put it in Nehemiah's heart. He put something in Nehemiah's heart to comprise this genealogy. And it wasn't just because, you know, the guy liked to write names on paper. It was because he wanted to remind the people of their connection with those that came before them and also remind them that it was the same God who delivered them, um, the people from the past that delivered them in the present and called them all to be his people. He wanted to provide a sense of continuity between the old and the new. And so our question today is what kind of continuity needs to remain bet between us, between believers in the church today with believers from the past 2,000 years. A better way to say it might be, what is the substance of the church that we need to maintain, that we need to uphold? More specifically, what is the substance of Substance Church? You see what I did there? That was awesome. I was waiting all week to be able to use the name of our, of our church in, into the work. Um, obviously, I put a lot of work into that, thinking that up. Um, but when we came up with the name Substance, it really was that simple. So for some of you that are, that are newer and you've never heard the, you know, the origin story of the name, well, it's, it, 
It's not complicated. Um, it was just a name that kept coming up when we were a core group of about 10 people. And we kept talking about, well, what is, you know, what's the substance of what we want to do? And it just sort of lent itself into being the name of the church because we, we care deeply about the things that actually we're going to unpack here in one minute. The things, that, the things that are comprised of what God intended his people and his church to be. And so that's what we, that's what we want to do. We want to unpack three key elements that need to remain intact so that the substance of the church, and for us, the substance of substance church, boom, um, remains solid. It remains sound for us. The first thing is what we did at the beginning of the service. Number one is a call to worship. Now, the Israelites knew something about what God required of their worship. When we go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, um, this was the charge from God to the nation of Israel. He said this, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the charge. That was the command. When those things are abided by, everything else comes into place. Everything else comes together. This was the call for the Israelites. This is what Nehemiah wanted to remind the people of. And it's one that they often strayed from when you read the history of Israel. And in fact, it's the reason why they were in the mess that they were in. It's the reason why they were exiles that were now returning to Jerusalem to repair everything that had been destroyed uh, and, and broken. They strayed. They strayed from this command. We stray from this command quite a bit. If you ever wonder what on earth you were put on this earth to do, this really helps simplify things quite a bit. I think when we think about worship, um, we tend to think that it happens right now. This is that time of worship. It's this thing that happens once a week on Sundays when we try to sing songs with our tired, croaky, early morning voices, right? Singing is an important part of our worship, our Sunday worship, our weekly worship, but it goes much deeper, it goes much wider than just that, right? What God is describing here in Deuteronomy when he talks about our worship is that he means our whole lives are meant to reflect a particular kind of posture of worship, a lifestyle of worship, a heart of worship to God that reflects an inner change of heart that's happened towards him. So we are expressing words when Scott is leading us through music. We are expressing words that are, that are already in our hearts for the affection that we have for Jesus that is growing since he saved us. Does that make sense? And so what we're doing in, on Sunday morning specifically, is it's a, it's a type of expression of our praise toward the Lord. But it's not supposed to just end. It's not supposed to begin and just end on Sundays. Our whole lives are supposed to be reflective of this inner change of heart. Because when you've had an inner change of heart towards something or someone, the only thing you know how to do is just to let it out. It's to blurt it out. Man, when, I, when, I, when I've tasted something delicious, I just want to tell somebody. When I've done something fun, I want to tell somebody. And it's the same for all of you. you. You want to praise the thing that has affected your heart. Paul, Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul's trying to get at there is that 
everything we do with every part of our being and our bodies is meant to be a holy and an acceptable spiritual kind of worship before the Lord. So that means we don't just get to shelve worship for Sunday mornings, but it really is a call for being who we now are. It's a call for living out our identity. Like I am always married to Melissa. Like there's not any moment of the day or the week where I'm just like, well, you know, that's cool because, you know, when I see you on Tuesday, remember, we won't be married. Right? That, that doesn't exist for us, right? The marriage doesn't just kick in during the times we're together, you know, hanging out, eating dinner, cuddling up on the couch, right? My whole life is lived as a married man. Everywhere I go, that's my identity. If you've been saved by Jesus, everywhere you go, everything you do, you are a worshiper of Jesus, whether you know it or not, who has been called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might, and to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, because even your bodies are redeemed as a way to give glory and to reflect the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Everything means everything. That's the Christian life. Everything means everything, right? Every time you brush your teeth, that's a way that you can give glory to God. That's a, that can become an act of worship in your life if you look at it as something redemptive in your life, right? Everything is everything. When you eat your lunch, when you mow your lawn, when you watch TV, when you run a 10K, when you go grocery shopping, when you take a drive, everything you do can be an act of worship in as much as that you are acknowledging the God that exists over it, that created it, that gave it to you, that blessed you with it. So the call to worship is that everything in our lives would be lived as an offering, as a sacrifice before the Lord. This is one of the key elements that need to remain intact so that the substance of Substance Church remains solid and sound, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, this is Paul talking to the Colossians. This is what he says. And whatever you do, whatever, Whatever doesn't mean whatevs. It means everything that you do in word or deed. You see how he doubles down on that? Just in case you want to try to reinterpret what everything you do means, let me tell you what that means. In word and deed, do everything, all of those words, all of those deeds, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So a life of worship is living a life acknowledging the God who is in your life and over your life and letting everything you do be an offering of thanksgiving towards him. Man, man, that's a call. That is the call to worship for us. So one of the key elements here that Nehemiah would have been preaching to his people would be this call to worship that they have, that they need to be reminded of. The second thing is this, a commitment to sound doctrine. 
You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and this is what it says. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful, listen to this, to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. The Israelites would have grown up with those words to make sure that they obey the commands of the Lord. They don't stray from the words of the Lord, that they're faithful to do all that he commanded them to do. They hadn't been. They hadn't been. So as Nehemiah compiles this genealogy, as they're reminded once again of the people from the past, the sins of the past, the faithfulness uh, from the past, all the history that represented their past that they are now forming and forging new histories of, they would be reminded that we need to be a people that obeys God's commands. And we need to do that. We need to look at the churches from the past, the movements from the past, the situations of the past that have arisen, that have strayed, that have derailed things because people didn't stick with what God taught them to do in his word. We gotta be very careful to do that. We strive in our commitment to stay grounded in the orthodox teaching of God's word. Orthodox, just a fancy word that means established and approved. Or it means this too, conforming to what has been traditionally accepted as true. So we want to be orthodox in our teaching and in our learning and in our doctrine. This means, listen to this, that we hold to what is true in God's word. We hold to the teachings and interpretations that have kept the church grounded in the words and actions of Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we're doing right now. We do what's called expository preaching, right? We go through books of the Bible. We expose what's in the word. We like dig up what's in the word, right? Because it keeps us drinking in the riches and the depths that's only contained in God's word, right? It keeps a fresh stream of God's word just running through our hearts and through our minds. Why? Because we're forgetful. Because we forget, right? That's why we gather as often as we do, right? Why? Because we're forgetful, right? And we're sinful, right? In fact, you are maybe going to remember one thing from this sermon when you exit the warehouse today, and that might be the most generous thing I've said all morning, right? But it should be something that explains, illustrates, and applies God's word to your heart. But as for you, Teach what accords with sound doctrine, Paul wrote to Titus. And then he goes on to say, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Then he goes on to say this, declare these things, Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, don't let anyone try to derail you because you're going to be speaking some hard words. And sometimes you're going to have the tendency to kind of back away from that and go, man, I wish I didn't have to say that. That happens to me, I don't know, like once a week. I wish I didn't have to say that. There's a way to say it. 
So I pray that the Lord would give me courage to say what's in here and to say it in a manner and with a voice and with a tone and with a heart that is smothering it with grace and mercy rather than condemnation. But that's what it means to present sound doctrine, to preach sound doctrine, to be committed to sound doctrine. I get super pumped about sound doctrine. I love serving up a steady diet of sound gospel-centered doctrine at Substance. I love it. I love knowing that the churches that we are partnered with in our denomination, the EFCA and our network, Harbor Network, they're doing the same thing right now. That gives me some, that gives me some courage and some confidence. I also love making sure we understand that a commitment to sound doctrine is also, listen to this, being guarded against church preferences becoming matters of church orthodoxy. There's a big difference between those things, right? The house we're living in right now was built in 1895. The owners that sold it to us, they dropped by a couple of years ago just to check it out. We were a little nervous, right? Um, but they came by and they saw that we had uh, made some changes, you know, took down some of the wallpaper, painted the walls, added some different fixtures, updated some of the appliances. But all of that was just cosmetic, right? Because the structure of the house, the foundation of the house was intact. It remained the same. I've never just like demoed a load-bearing wall on a Saturday morning for fun, right? Because that would create what? A compromised structure. I don't need a wall collapsing on my head during season six of Downton Abbey, right? I need to be able to enjoy that with some peace. I can paint a load-bearing wall, but I should never remove a load-bearing wall. You see the difference between those things? That's why we have freedom at Substance Church. We have freedom over how we dress. We joke about that sometimes. We have freedom over how we dress. We have freedom concerning the instruments we use to accompany our time of, of praise and worship, of singing. We have freedom for the way that our church building is, is decorated. We have freedom for how often we practice communion. It's different per church. We have freedom about what version of the Bible, translation of the Bible that we use. We have freedom whether people can consume alcohol or not. We have freedom in those areas. We have freedom about what kind of music people listen to, right, when they scatter on Sundays. We have freedom whether you decide to homeschool your kids. You have freedom whether you decide to send your kids to public school. We have freedom in those areas. Those are not matters of orthodoxy, of right practice. Those are preferences that need to come from a conviction that we have for doing things that we are convinced honor the Lord, right? So we make decisions on these types of preferences based on that, based on our convictions but we don't want to hold them as orthodox. I'm going to butcher this story. Um, it doesn't matter because you haven't heard it. Um, but I, but I, don't, I don't know if he's here. I don't want to call him out. I hate doing that. But I remember when, when Kirby Sloan had, I think he'd been here a couple of weeks and we, got, we had a conversation. And I remember he said he was at his work and he told somebody, he goes, hey, I'm, I'm, going, to be, I'm going to go to that, that substance church thing, you know, downtown. And the guy said, whoa, 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 just be careful. Just be careful. And Kirby goes, well, yeah, well, I mean, what do you mean? Like, what should I be careful about? And he goes, well, I don't know. I've just heard some things. 
And Kirby, being the wise man that he has said, well, again, I'm all ears. What have you heard? And he goes, I don't know. I've heard that the pastor, I don't know, like, like he wears denim and stuff. <laughs> right? I think that's what he said. It was something ridiculous like that, right? Um, denim is not orthodoxy or not orthodoxy, <laughs> right? At the end of the day. But it's, it's funny because we, we laugh at that, and yet the church historically, through the years, when it finds itself typically in areas of disunity, a lot of times, not all the time, sometimes, sometimes disunity comes because there are people that don't want to stay orthodox and people that are wanting to move from that, right? Um, but sometimes it's for, it's for reasons like that, right? It's for reasons that are more preference-driven that have, that have nothing to do with what Jesus has actually prescribed or described for us uh, in Scripture. So a commitment to sound doctrine is also guarding ourselves from sliding into legalism, right? Which we have the tendency to do easily and often. We want to engage in all of these things as what? As worshipers who are striving to be holy and to remain committed to sound doctrine. Can I wear something holier than denim? I don't think I can. I don't think I can. The third thing that we want to do, the third element that we want to remain, we want to make sure it remains intact so that the substance of Substance Church is solid and secure is we want to have a community of loving and serving one another. So we want to, we want to call to worship, we want a commitment to sound doctrine, and we want a community of loving and serving one another. We go all the way back to Leviticus. Again, the words the Israelites would have known, it says this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. This was a command and a charge from God. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right? And then we get to the New Testament the words of Jesus in John 13, he says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Then he gives the reason why. One of the reasons why. Because by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So loving and serving one another, this gets us into the realm of unity within a church that is practicing being worshipers and that is committed to sound doctrine. Peter tells us in 1 Peter to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In other words, this is what can be dangerous. We can say we worship God. We can look like we worship God on Sundays. We can open our Bibles when the pastor is do an expository preaching, but then end up treating our brothers and sisters in such a way that denies everything I just said, right? We've talked a lot in the life of this church about what it means to love and to serve one another. We actually did a pretty long series on it last fall. We've talked a lot about being hospitable. Why? Why do we talk about that so much? Why do we talk about this community thing so much? Why do we talk about being together and learning to love and to practice good works that other people benefit from? Why do we do that? Well, because this is the identifying mark of our call to worship and our commitment to sound doctrine. 
How does anybody know that you're a worshiper of Jesus and that you're committed to sound doctrine? Is it because you say you are? Or is it because they feel the effects of it in real time? Well, it's the latter, obviously, right? You know, one of the things that we talked about when we, when we planted Substance was, man, I, you know, looking around, we got this core group, this motley crew, you know, and um, it was like, what do we have to offer? Like, what, what's, what's going to be one of the distinguishing marks of the church? It's like, well, I don't know. You know, what have we done up to this point? Well, we've, we've gathered people into our homes, we've formed a community group, and people seem to talk a lot about our hospitality. So really, we made hospitality one of the big pillars really of who we are, one of, one of the, the distinctions of the church. We don't do it perfectly, um, but it is the thing that we have spent a lot of time thinking about, and it is the thing that kind of grounds everything that we do, is the sense of being welcoming and the sense of being friendly, as friendly and as welcoming as we know how to be. We're still growing in that, um, for sure. But the reason for that, one of the reasons for that, is that nobody can argue with that, right? Nobody's going to argue with your kindness Nobody's going to argue with you when you invite them into your home. Nobody's going to argue with donuts after the service, right? I mean, you better not argue about donuts after the service. But nobody's going to argue with kindness. Now, they're going to, they're, they're going to have some issues, you know, based, you know, potentially with our doctrine. They're maybe not going to like some of our theological positions. I don't know. That's possible, right? We're going to be a little too conservative theologically for some people, um, but the one thing that can draw them in so that they can maybe be patient with us, take some time getting to know where we're at as worshipers and with our sound doctrine, um, is that they will feel welcomed. They will feel a sense of friendliness. They'll feel a sense of love that is sort of emanating from us and being poured out to them. We want that to be, we want that to be the high calling of our church that we continue to grow in and that we continue uh, to practice for sure. Um, one of the reasons why, if you missed last week, we had a special meeting about the corner of our building, about this new cafe we're building called The Corner House. And so this is an idea that we've had for years and years, which is, hey, how do we open up our building? How do we make it available to the community of both Substance and the Ashland community during the week? So we thought, man, we have, this, we have the corner of our warehouse, which is also on the corner of South Street and Luther Street. Why don't we develop something that can be open all day? that you guys can come in, you can bring people uh, into, you can have a place to work, you can have a place to, to hold meetings, you can have a place to pray. Um, you, you, you can benefit from uh, how God has blessed us in this particular part of the town with this warehouse so that it's open more than just on Sunday. It is open more than just on Sunday. You guys know that, right? You guys can drop by here during the week and there's like people here working and doing stuff, just so you know. I know that's kind of old school and a lot of churches don't function that way anymore, but we're, we're here if you ever need to stop by. But it's going to be even easier now when we open that because that's going to be something that is prepared and is ready. And we're going to have all kinds of couches. And we're going to have this new bar that we've prepared that you can sit at with your laptop and a cup of coffee. It's going to be sweet. And so, in fact, we're starting building on that uh, this afternoon. Really excited about that. But again, this is not just an advertisement for the corner house. It's to simply say that this is another way that we strive to be hospitable. We want to avail ourselves to one another. We want to create spaces that allow us to do that better. So what, where are we getting at with all of this? Well, this is what it is. Worship and sound doctrine mean nothing if they don't change how we treat others. Right? 
You all do an incredible job at this, by the way. You all do an incredible job at this. At the same time, sometimes we miss things. We're all growing in these things. Sometimes people don't get cared for like they should. So we acknowledge that. I'm acknowledging that right now. We repent. We seek grace. We show patience. We move slowly with sympathy, with brotherly love, with tenderness of heart, with humility of mind. We remember that all of this is so much bigger than we are. And that's what Nehemiah was trying to do with this genealogy that he included all these new names with, that this is much bigger than just you are. This is a legacy of men and women that are all jacked up like you, but that God has not ceased to remain faithful to most importantly. This is being part of a historic legacy of faith, a legacy of saints. You guys know that? You're part of that. You're part of a legacy of faith that spans the centuries. You are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone in all the struggles that are not even very unique to us. And that's what gives us some of the comfort as we think back to the people that have been faithful before us. So we scatter today remembering who we are. Who are we? We are worshipers who are committed to sound doctrine and we live out that doctrine through loving and serving our church family and community. It sounds so simple. If only it was that simple, right? Remember what the substance of Substance Church is. You guys hear what I'm saying? You are the children of the living Christ who came to die and rise again for the salvation of your souls. Rest in the grace to be who you are and all the messiness and with all the mistakes you're going to make. Rest in that. Resist the opposition that exists. Listen to this. In you and around you. In you and around you to conform to worldly standards of church behavior. Because if we think it's those other churches that are legalists, that's the first step towards being a legalistic church. Resist. And then finally, ready yourselves with the grace you've been given to live out your blood-bought identity in Jesus Christ. Be the substance of Substance Church. The good thing is that it doesn't work unless we do it together. And we will do it together by God's grace. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the rock of the church. We thank you that Christ is the cornerstone. And we thank you that you make it very plain to us what our call is to be worshipers, to commit ourselves to sound doctrine and to a community of loving and serving one another. I pray, Lord, that you would renew that desire in us as our love and our affection for you is once again renewed. We thank you for sustaining us as a church. We thank you for preserving us as a church. We're a sinful church. Um, we come before you on Sundays because we want you to once again renew our hearts for the work that you've set before us. 
So Lord, remind us of the grace that we have to do that, Lord, and strengthen our faith. Lord, increase our fruitfulness. Lord, even as we look ahead um, as a church to some of the things that you are allowing us to do in those ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.